Welcome, and thank you for listening today. This Caregiver Life podcast focuses on caregivers from all walks of life. Throughout the episode, we will hear from caregivers on the front line, those who do the day-to-day, sometimes hour-to-hour caregiving. We will also hear from care recipients, professionals in the field of caregiving, and other various topics of interest to those living this caregiver life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Caregiver Live. Good afternoon, if you're listening like us at four o'clock in the afternoon, or good morning if you're somewhere else. You know we have some listeners now in Canada, Mayor. We do? Yep, and guess where else? Iceland? I don't know about Iceland. I just want to go to Iceland, that's why I'm saying (laughs) I don't know about Iceland, but we have listeners now in Switzerland. Oh, I think we probably should podcast from Switzerland. I mean, I think we need to have a road show whenever the stay at home quarantine COVID pandemic is over. I think we should definitely have an international road show. I'm on it. Raquel, she's a real traveler. She'll, she'll, she probably has to go with us, you know, tour guide. But I mean, I've been to Iceland, so I can show you the sights. Just to remind everybody, we're joined today as part two of our four-part series, a collaboration with the Family Operating Base, and Raquel Derrick is here with us to serve as our third co-host of the day, and we have another very special guest, Dan Miller from Wounded Warrior Project. Hello, thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're so happy that you're here, Dan. Um, Today, we're all cheery and chipper, even though we're talking about a subject that really isn't. Today we're talking about grief. This episode is going to talk about the complexities of grief, ambiguous grief, anticipatory grief. We're going to hit on some of the things everybody knows, the stages of grief and the symptoms, but we're also going to talk about some real life examples of how how grief is affecting, well, every single one of us and every single one of our listeners. You know, two and a half million people die in the United States every year, and each one of them leaves on average five grieving loved ones. That's a lot of grief in the United States in just any one given year. And for some people, they may be grieving right now over something that hasn't really happened yet or is happening in stages. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, that anticipatory grief. And we're going to talk about ambiguous grief, grieving things that are still sort of with us, but changing over time. And we're also going to hear from Raquel. She's done some research and she's, she's got some facts and figures to share with us and, and talk a little bit about um, grief from a different point of view. So lots to cover here. And we hope that you leave this show, well, maybe with some coping tactics, maybe not feeling so alone if you're feeling grief. So with that, I'm going to introduce our, our very special guest, uh, Dan Miller. I'm going to go ahead and read, well, I'm going to read your bio. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as many of our listeners already know, I'm a member of the Wounded Warrior Project Warrior Speak team. Uh, Simply put, I travel the country and share my story with groups of all shapes and sizes from middle school kids to rotary clubs, VFWs, even corporate outings and and conferences. It's, It's an amazing career, and I'm so blessed to have teammates like Dan Miller, who's also on the Warrior Speak team. And Dan has, um, well, a very, very uh, impressive background. You know, he, he'll tell you that he doesn't see his life experiences as being his story. He prefers to call it his history. 
he says, we're all products of our own personal history. And the first step is really understanding a person or a subject is to understand the truth behind that history. Now, Dan's history starts in Chicago, Illinois, which is where he's joining us from today. For as long as he can remember, Dan wanted to join the military. Now, he did just that at 17. He joined the United States Marine Corps and served in many roles, multiple deployments from Desert Storm to Operation Iraqi Freedom. And he finally retired in 2015. After 29 years serving our country, it's, it's really hard to believe that you were in the Marine Corps that long, Dan. And you look <laughs> so young. <laughs> So in addition to his service in the Marine Corps for 24 years while he was a reservist, Dan actually also worked uh, as a police officer uh, on, in, in the Chicago area, I believe. Is that right, Dan? Yes. And so Dan has a lot of experience with things that cause grief, with, with loss, and both in his service in the Marine Corps and in his service as a police officer. Dan, one, of, one thing that Dan has said is that, you know, when you see destruction, when you see lives lost, sacrifices, suffering, it changes you. It certainly does. But when that's happening, sometimes you don't have the chance to process it. And that's what happened to Dan. So he buried all of those feelings. He would put himself into the next mission, focus on the next obstacle to overcome. But something Dan realizes that no experience can stay buried forever. After he retired, Dan was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress and really struggled for some time. But during a moment of darkness, Dan discovered Wounded Warrior Project was there. He reached out and got help. And I'm very happy to say that Dan travels the country now sharing his message of hope. And I hope that his message will pick you up today. So Dan, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. Thank you, Jennifer, for having me. And I'd like to say, you know, I'm very proud uh, that me and you are teammates. I remember the day that I first met you, uh, the day that we both started our journey with Wounded Warrior Project together. And uh, it's been a, a very exciting time for me. Uh, I'm very proud to, uh, to be a part of Wounded Warrior Project. And they I can say without a doubt, literally saved me from myself and helped me save my life, which has allowed me to watch my children grow up. Now we wanna um, give a special shout out to your family, most specifically your son, who is also a United States Marine, and we're all praying for his safety and well-being, of course, and, um, and to the rest of your family. Now, Dan, um, this is, this Caregiver Life podcast. And I wanna make a note that you're a caregiver as well. Yes, I have uh, a daughter who is 16 years old that uh, was born uh, with a very specific genetic disorder. Uh, it's called Pierre-Robin syndrome. Uh, she was born with no palate, soft or hard. Uh, so she's had about nine surgeries so far and she's 16 now. Um, she's bipolar, autistic, intermittent explosive disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So there's been a lot that's gone on uh, as she's grown up. Uh, a lot of time in the hospital, a lot of doctor's visits, a lot of special counseling, uh, and just kind of trying to watch her and help her to grow so that she has a chance uh, to 
do what she wants in the world like everyone else for the most part has the same opportunities and that's really beautiful dan you know we uh we we never know what path our children are going to go down and even children who have challenges like your daughter have just a, a as much of a wonderful future we hope as every every other child and so i think that's that's a really um it's really special relationship that you have with her. And I know there are a lot of challenges to taking care of a child who's had such a, uh, such a hard road medically. Now, um, speaking of medical appointments, you've been going to a lot lately with someone other than your daughter. Uh, yeah, my father, um, my father is a army veteran, um, and was diagnosed with cancer about a year ago. And so he's, uh, 83 years old. And uh, he's a very tough individual uh, and doesn't take direction too well from his son, which I can understand. I, I'm just good enough at my age to hold the flashlight when we work around the house. But uh, he, uh, you know, has been battling cancer. So I've been taking care of him, uh, taking him to his appointments and making sure that we're on track. And he's in the fight right now. And and uh, I'm there with him. So, you know, hopefully we can beat this and he can continue to uh, do what he wants to do. You know, we have a number of listeners who are male caregivers. Oftentimes they don't self-identify, they don't ask for help, um, and they don't share their stories with others. So I appreciate you doing that for us. And like many caregivers, you care for more than one person and also try to care for yourself. Now, Dan, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about your military experience and, and how, how grief has impacted you uh, because of your service in the Marine Corps. Absolutely. Um... So, you know, I spent a long time in the Marine Corps, and as you had stated, it was both active and as a reservist. And, uh, you know, I can actually recall the first time um, I experienced loss or fear, uh, uh, and that was back when I was a very young Marine, uh, and I was in the desert of Kuwait, and uh, we lost someone uh, in our unit, and at that young age, you know, we were trying to take back the, the country of Kuwait uh, from the Iraqi army. And, you know, I didn't know how to process it. Uh, I was young, so it happened and I felt bad and we had a memorial and then I just kind of put it away. And it was something that we just, you didn't talk about after that. Uh, it wasn't cool to bring it up. It wasn't something that you sat around and, and, and kind of relived. So I put that away. And, you know, as I started to get older, uh, I left active duty uh, and I became a police officer. And, uh, you know, with my police career, um, I have multiple experiences of, of seeing people go through grief. Uh, I've been the one to come to their home and tell them that, their loved one is no longer here. Uh, I've lost friends in the line of duty. Um, and so once again, I didn't, I never quite understood how to deal with it. And I buried it and I kept burying that grief. And eventually uh, in 2004, during uh, a deployment to Iraq, which was a very tough deployment for my unit, we ended up losing uh, 16 
of uh, our Marines, and I knew them, and they, I knew them as brothers. And, uh, you know, I think part of the idea to a lot of people, especially males, is, is in the military, especially men in the military, you know, you don't want to look as though you're weak. Uh, you don't want to be perceived as someone that can't hack it or take it. So the grief gets buried. You don't talk about it. You don't deal with it. Um, you don't ask for help. Uh, you just try and tough your way through it. And that's exactly what I did um, during that time. Uh, I came home. I was uh, still married at the time. And uh, I didn't bother to listen to the people that were closest to me who had said I had changed. I didn't want to believe them. Uh, I chose to say, no, you've changed. I'm fine. Uh, I deflected things uh, as to the best of my ability. I went right back on the street as quickly as I possibly could as a police officer. Uh, and I think the way I dealt with things was the harder I worked, the less I had to, to think about other things. So I was working my regular police job plus three side jobs, plus taking care of my help, trying to help my wife take care of my daughter, take care of the house and be still be a reservist in the Marine Corps. And, uh, you know, we were promised that we wouldn't go back again. And, you know, less than two years later, we went back to Iraq again. Um, and, uh, you know, I had risen up in the ranks. And, you know, upon that deployment, I think I was, what, about 289 Marines I was in charge of. So I was focused on making sure that they would all come home. And, uh, you know, sadly, um, within my unit, we lost a couple of Marines and, you know, uh, it, I didn't know them personally, but they're my brothers and it, it just hit me really hard. And I think that was the turning point. Uh, I will tell you that, uh, someone once told me that your soul is kind of like a bag. Um, one or two things are going to happen with your soul. You can keep piling things into it, but one or two things are going to happen. One, it's either going to break or it's going to overflow. Either one of those are very bad experiences. They don't normally turn out well. And in my case, you know, not seeking any help, not listening to the people that love me, uh, honestly, it cost me uh, a lot of things. It cost me my marriage of uh, over 20 years. And I, I don't blame my former wife for that. Uh, it almost cost me a relationship with my son. Uh, same thing with my daughter, uh, many of my friends. Uh, and the worst part was it, it almost cost me my life. Uh, I'd gotten to the point where at work I'd seen enough death and violence and kept burying it and not talking to anybody about it and not getting any help that uh, finally one day, uh, you know, I was served with divorce papers. And I think that was the final straw. And all that grief and all that pain just overflowed. And it just erupted inside of me. And I ended up in a vehicle, uh, my vehicle on the side of the road with my service weapon buried in my head. And I was not thinking about my family. I was not thinking about anything 
other than I'm not a very good Marine. I couldn't bring all my, my friends home from war, uh, plus some of the things I did in combat to other people. You know, is God going to forgive me? Um, I'm not a very good husband, obviously. My wife wants to divorce me. I'm not a very good policeman because I can't stop people from hurting each other. No matter how much I talk or how much I try, people just continue to do horrible things to each other. And since I'm not a very good husband and my wife wants to divorce me, that must mean I'm not a very good parent because she's willing to take my children away from me. And at that moment, you know, when it was very quiet and all that grief came out, uh, you know, I was getting ready to pull that trigger and I thought to, about Wounded Warrior Project and I had actually gone to an event and I'd, I'd seen some stuff and uh, there was another individual that had dealt with some very hard things. Uh, but the bottom line is it pulled me back from that edge and uh, I started down a new path. Um, but one of the first things I had to do was accept the fact that I was grieving. Uh, I had to learn to cry. I had to learn to accept what my heart was telling me uh, and let it out and, and, and be honest with other people and talk to them. And, and I was very surprised when I started doing that, how many other of my fellow Marines and police officers were exactly in the same boat I was in and were so surprised that I was being so honest and were so relieved when they actually had a chance to cry and, and to actually talk about the individuals that, uh, that we lost and, you know, to remember them and remember them in a good way, not just what happened to them, but remember them as they were in life. And so that was the hardest part. But once I got over that and I learned how to deal with grief, I've been on my, uh, my road to recovery ever since. You know, Dan, you're, you're talking, your whole story relates to those uh, emotional stages of grief. And many of us have heard them over the years, the, the initial shock and disbelief and then, and then denial. Um, and you were in deny in the denial stage for a very long time. And then, and then you started hitting the other stages really rapidly. Uh, bargaining, guilt, anger, depression, which is where you got stuck. And you didn't get to that final stage of acceptance and hope really on your own. You needed help with that. And um, we're going to talk when we come back from the, the break here about, about those stages, about how we can get stuck and unstuck from them and find hope. I, I want to thank you for sharing um, such a deeply intimate, personal experience um, with grief and suicide ideation. It's something that we need to talk about as a society, and I just honor you for doing that. And uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. America's service members are unstoppable. Wounded Warrior Project advocates for these heroes, helping injured veterans achieve their highest ambition. They're unstoppable heroes. Support warriors today at woundedwarriorproject.org. Well, we're back from our break, and we're here with Raquel, Raquel Derrick from Family Operating Base, my co-host, Mary Ham Ward, and our special guest, Dan Miller from Wounded Warrior Project. Dan, I want to thank you again for sharing your story and just ask you, um, what ways can people cope? What, what ways helped you cope with all that grief and the overwhelming loss and, and the depression that you suffered as a result of it? 
Absolutely, uh, Jennifer. I, I'll tell you the first thing that you do, or I think that most people should do, is accept the fact that you're grieving. It's not that easy to do, but identify that you're grieving and communicate with others uh, and be open with your communication with others, whether it be uh, your best friend or a, a, a loved one, find someone that you can talk to, uh, a veterans group, um, you know, a professional counselor, find someone that you can open up to and be willing to talk about what went on and it's going to be hard to do but if you have someone there with you to help you guide you through it uh the more you talk about it the more you understand it the more you understand it the more that empowers you to have power over the grief instead of the other way around uh and once you get to that stage where it's not that you're taking it lightly it's just you have a better understanding so I think the biggest thing is to have that communication to be honest with yourself and to accept that you're grieving and it's not a sign of weakness to grieve it doesn't make you any less of a man or less of a person if you're grieving uh, in fact it makes you a better person and puts you more in touch with who you really are if you're honest and and with yourself and others about what you're grieving about. Well, that's, I couldn't, I can't imagine hearing anybody say it better, Dan, truly. Now we're, we're going to switch gears just a little bit over to uh, Mayor, and Mayor's going to talk about, well, a different kind of grief, some, you know, kind of grief that we all may experience at some time, but some of us experience it in really, really deep ways. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much, Dan, for sharing your story. I know the story is, has, your life has so many dimensions to it and the parts that you've shared with us are so compelling, gives, gives us so much to think about in terms of what we've, we've all experienced in life. I don't, I don't think that anybody gets through life without having some grief, but you certainly have had your share with, um, with your deployments and with your Marines and, and then even with your family as well. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, ambiguous grief first. It was a brand new term for me a few years ago, but it, it put a name on something I had experienced in the 1990s when my husband Tom had encephalitis and it changed him dramatically. So encephalitis is a brain infection. We've spoken about that on the This Caregiver Life before. And in fact, I just did a podcast with them called Continuing On, just because it was the right moment and I recorded it and I learned some things about him through the podcast, which was interesting. We talked about grief and I had felt so much grief after he had the infection, after the dust settled and we said, okay, where do we go from here? Realizing he wasn't the same person anymore and he never would be the same person. And, it, and there was nobody to talk to. This was the winter of 1994, we lived 10 miles north of West Point, and we had one snowstorm after another. So you couldn't even get out of the house to go talk to anybody, even if you could find somebody. We didn't have any health insurance. I was in school, and I was doing a research paper on um, family and society, and I came across 
something that alluded to ambiguous grief, but didn't say the word ambiguous grief. And I knew right then and there that I was grieving so much for that man that I fell so hard for in 1979, who is not the same guy anymore. And he was not feeling the grief. So it, it was tough. And he still will say today, he didn't feel the grief, but of course, he wasn't missing himself like I was missing him as the partner in my life. And what did life look like for us? I was 33, 34 years old. What did life look like for us going forward? And uh, I still really never got help because I really didn't have time, to be honest. And I don't even think that's a, a good excuse, but it was my excuse. I didn't have the money. I didn't have the time. I was, uh, I'm a very faithful person. So I, I prayed and I read scripture and I did write some letters to people and I shared it with Tom and I will say he's very good at letting me cry. And so I cried my heart out and then I got on. I got on with life because I had to feed the kids and I had to do things. I think ambiguous grief is probably very much felt today with um, the virus life that we're, the COVID-19 life that we're living in because what does it look like for people? Your job that suddenly was there is suddenly not there. What does that look like for people? Worrying, what does the future look like? Will I ever go back to going to my office every day? Will no, it's I... such an important point, Mayor. Grief yeah. isn't limited to the loss of people. We can no. we can grieve the loss of a lifestyle. I know that um, I'm grieving the ability to um, be mobile, to, to have freedom outside of my home. And that, that sounds so selfish when I say it out loud and it's, it feels selfish to have so that. One of, the, one of the things I do like to share with people though is um, not to compare what feels grieving to you and what feels grieving to me. And I, I also live now, so ambiguous grief I've kind of sewn that up. It's a lot of years ago for me, but it's, it's never forgotten. So I have a lot of empathy for people who are going through what you're going through right now. For our children who are not going back to the classroom in the way that they've known going to the classroom. For our teachers who are going to wonder, is this kid sneezed at my desk? Am I going to get sick now? And for us in our family, does that mean you can't come now see your father for how many weeks? Because he probably will never survive this virus. So it's changed so many things. I think we have probably a lot of ambiguous grief floating around. And I'll go back to what Dan said, acknowledge it. And don't be afraid to acknowledge it. It's okay. And it's okay to get a box of tissues and, and cry over it. These, these are hurtful things. Um, anticipatory grief, we often feel that when like Dan, with your dad having cancer, with my husband who has ALS, I mean, I know that he's terminal. And that anticipated yeah. Anticipatory grief is heavy, it's a heavy load to carry. In the ALS world, there are people who, they die very quickly from it. And there's almost a blessing in that um, from the family's perspective. Um, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Because we want our loved one with us. But at the same time, I've been carrying anticipatory grief for 10 years. That's a long time. That's always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Always, when is it gonna happen? Is he gonna fall? Am I gonna be on this podcast and jump off because he fell in the kitchen? Because today that leg just didn't follow the other leg. It's something that's always with you. And to some degree, that's exhausting. And, it's, and I do talk about it. And I think by talking about it, I lessen the pain of it. 
I don't think I'll ever get a good conclusion to grief. I don't think there's a such thing as saying, oh, I'm healed now and I'm not grieving. I think I will forever grieve the losses in our life. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's one of the toughest conversations I've had with my father. You know, uh, it is inevitable. He understands that. I understand that. You know, he's 83 years old. He was an iron worker for 44 years. He's lived a tough life. And that day is going to come, and, and we have communicated about it. Uh, so some of that anticipatory grief has been relieved. It doesn't take it all away, but it does help to kind of set the, the stage so that when that does happen, it isn't going to be quite as sharp as if uh, it was ignored. And, and we, we never brought it up. So you're absolutely right. It, it does help to talk a little bit about it. Mm -hmm. It does. And I, and plan for it a little bit. I mean, I have my, you know, I'm, I won't kill our audience with my plans for what it looks like here. But um, my friends know uh, what that looks like for me and what the end will look like for me. And to the degree that I think I can anticipate how I will feel and react. I've shared that I expect it could be totally different than what I'm thinking right now. And I, I think a lot of people have to be feeling that as well in this world that we're living on in now, like with, with the kids, I go back to that a lot because the kids really have to handle that. We won't see one of our grandchildren. Well, we won't see either one of our grandchildren until there's a vaccine. Um, so, you know, they're, ex they're experiencing that kind of loss for themselves. Uh, the loss of the kids going to school every day. That's such an important part of children's lives. Um, the part of people going to work, getting in the car and being alone. I mean, I will say too, <laughs> I'll throw this out there and then we'll, we'll go back to it. Well, I'll bring, we'll do a little break and then we'll bring uh, Raquel in. Um, it's, it's like how much I grieved when I saw had to stop working and be at home and like work from home. I couldn't stand it. Like I just really missed, I was a teacher in the classroom. I really missed my students. I missed the dynamics of being with people every day. I was so lonesome. I was, it was like crushing for me. And even though I'm here with my husband, right? So you're with people. Gosh, it's so, Dan, it's so Dan and I have also experienced that our, our job speaking um, about our grown grief, about our own circumstances is really therapeutic. It's a prolonged exposure therapy at its finest, I like to say, and uh, traveling three or four days a week is part of our lifestyle, but also connecting with thousands and thousands of people. Um, then to go from that to zero was a big shock to the system. I spent, I had a lot of feelings. I spent a lot of time feeling a lot of weirdness about it and realized that I was grieving, you know, my professional life and trying to figure out, um, you know, what can I do until we can get back to that? Cause I really actually do like that. Absolutely. Yeah, and, totally and I wanted to make one more final comment, you know, um, because I know we're going to break and you're going to hook up with Raquel, but I hope one of the things that we can also discuss for our listeners is something that I've really experienced um, ambiguous grief in my life. Uh, my brother, who, whom I care for, um, was wounded when he was very young and, you know, I raised him through his teenage years and lots of ideas about what his life might look like. Um, family, I would be an aunt and he would have, you know, he had ideas for what kind of a career he wanted to go into and um, he wanted to do some 
amateur night stand-up comedy and lots of different things that haven't been able to come to fruition for him because of his combat wounds and disabilities and the challenges that he's faced. And I, I, ha I had to really work through the grief over not having that brother that I thought, not having that relationship that I thought we would have. Totally, totally understandable. Um, and then for your own, you know, your own personal plans for yourself, for your career, right? Okay, so let's take um, a 30 second break. And um, then when we come back, Raquel's gonna jump in. Raquel, how are you? Good. All right, so let's jump in because I, you, You've read Sebastian Younger's book, and um, you have a lot of interesting things to say about it. I'm going to confess right now, I've not read the book. So basically, I'm turning this over to you, and you can ask us questions, tell us about the book, talk about the, you know, isolation, talk about grief yourself, um, ask Dan questions. I'm, I'm just going to throw this wide open. Okay, thank you. And thank you, Dan, for sharing so openly. Um, so much of that resonated with me. And really, um, this idea of grief and isolation, like when I first came to Mary and was like, I have this idea for a collaboration. It was really like this topic that sparked me to say, hey, like our population, we know a thing or two about grief. And it's, it's exactly that grief when you're grieving a life that you're still living, right? And you're grieving a person that you're still living with and having there. Um, and as far as isolation, how as caregivers, we can often feel so isolated because you kind of start to learn that like not everybody is safe to speak to, right? Not everybody understands it. Um, sometimes I've been so overwhelmed in the caregiving aspect of things that I retreat to myself because like I just don't have capacity beyond that, right? So... I thought it was a really um, important topic for us to cover. And I am a huge fan of Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe. If you haven't read or listened to it, highly recommend it. Um, but part of the premise of his argument in Tribe is that our civilization is rooted in being a tribal community, um, which is still part of our innate composition. We're primates, making us social beings. So we're literally wired for social connectedness, right? Like at our core. However, as society's evolved, we've also kind of started to get away from this tribal community idea. Um, so when stripped of this, isolation can be deadly. That's Sebastian Younger's argument. Um, and he looks at it in terms of veterans and suicide rates. So why is it that suicide is so high among American service members and veterans? Because in the military, they experience a form of tribal living. There's an interconnectedness to a higher level, like even beyond some other structures that we have, the military is very um, tribal in nature. And then when they return to a society at large, which most of that tribal existence is stripped, it's really hard to readjust right? Like you're no longer with, you know, these people all the time. You're no longer um, 
you kind of lose that mentality of like, I would lay down my life for this person. I know this person would lay down their life for me, right? Like there's a power in that connection. Um, so I, th I think that we need to apply this to the larger population that's dealing with the pandemic right now, right? And really look at what can we learn from this idea with what we're dealing with now. So all of a sudden, many experience the stay at home order forcing them into isolation, right? Whether they weren't going to work anymore, whether the kids weren't going to school, um, whatever, even just not going to the grocery store, whatever it is. Like I, um, as a stepmom, like always loved going to the grocery store because I was like, oh, okay, it's a little like me time and it's just, you know, it's just me and I like get to like do whatever. And now I like go to the grocery store and I'm like, I can't breathe with this mask. Like I'm so uncomfortable. Like this person's too close to me. Get in and get out. Right. And that's if I even go in. Sometimes I just order groceries. I'm going the wrong way down the aisle. Now people are mad at me and I, I tried, but I missed the arrow. Yeah, so our society on a large scale has had this huge shift that now everybody's kind of scrambling to adapt to and understand. Um, you know, I hate the fact that they called it social distancing because really what we're doing is spatial distancing, right? And when you use a term like social distancing, it has a connotation to it. So it, a May 2020 New York Times article by Benedict Carey discussed the impact of the pandemic on suicide rates among the population as at large. So while it's too soon to really understand the relationship between the pandemic and suicides, experts are concerned about the influence of heightened anxiety and social, social isolation on mental health. We've seen in our military and veteran populations that this is something we should in fact be concerned about. Um, while currently available data don't necessarily suggest an increase in suicide right now, it doesn't mean that we won't see it in the future. And it doesn't mean that it's not something we shouldn't start talking about right now, right? So the signature markers of this pandemic, the isolation and the anxiety has led to an increase in mental health concerns among Americans. A Kaiser Family Foundation poll found that nearly half of Americans feel the coronavirus is harming their mental health. Online therapy services are seeing sharp increases in utilization. It's so important to me that we're talking about this topic because people need to know that they're not alone in these feelings despite possibly being spatially alone. Um, it's actually quite common right now to experience the types of grief that we spoke about, to feel isolated, to feel increased mental health symptoms because of the combination of these things. And it's so um, complex. We have, okay, so in one sense, I feel, I felt super isolated during this time, right? And had grief feelings for losing different things in my life. And then at the same time, I ended up getting really overwhelmed by Zoom calls and special projects and doing all these things that are outside of the norm. And even though there was communication with other people, it, it wasn't helping me feel less isolated. And I wonder if, the, if any of you felt that way. Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, I can tell you, uh, I never thought the day would come when I would hear myself say this, but uh, I'm going to tell you, you know, in a way, thank God for social, social media. And the reason I say that is I saw a drastic increase in what, uh, what we would call in the military and the veteran community, buddy checks. Mm -hmm. 
And, and what it was is you would have, you know, uh, I live by myself with a, a small dog. So ever since this thing started, I've been by myself with the dog and he's tired of listening to me talk. So people would reach out to me uh, via Facebook and, you know, it was a buddy check. And, you know, if you get buddy checked, you're obligated to respond. And it was, how are you doing? Hey, uh, give me a call. And I had a lot of people that I hadn't talked to for a period of time were reaching out and a lot of connections were, a lot of people were reconnected with each other and started talking more and making plans for, hey, why don't we get together? Why don't we have that reunion we're talking about? We've been talking about for years. Why don't we do this? You know, because we've had this, what we would call in the military, an operational pause where everything comes to a halt. And here we are, let's make something of it. It does not replace that absolute, like uh, Raquel was saying, it does not replace that person-to-person -person contact, but it has been somewhat of a bridge uh, that's been positive versus complete isolation uh, from everyone. And I thank you for raising that, Dan, because I think that that's an important thing to acknowledge. There is a collectivism in what we're experiencing right now, right? Because everybody's experiencing at the same time. So in our discussion of grief, we've all kind of touched on feeling isolated at times because we either were, like we couldn't leave because of snow, or we just didn't know who to talk to or what to talk to them about. And I think what I've really enjoyed seeing is the creativity in keeping that social connection via Zoom. You know, I have a group of girlfriends and every Friday night, we get together and we do like a um, drink and food pairing activity. And one person is in charge for that week of deciding like what the drink and food are and they do delivery to everyone. And then we all get on and do it together, right? Like we would never, ever, ever in a million years, like do that outside of this thing, pushing us to be more creative. There's a group here that is doing, um, they call it, I've been mugged. And it's like, People, you know, post their address in a social media group and you show up with like a little gift bag or basket just with goodies and treats and like it's totally random. They don't know it's coming, right? And it's like, how fun, how cool is that to do, right? And so there are some ways that this is pushing us to even be more intentional about connectedness that I'm not sure people are necessarily tracking as it's happening, right? Because they're stuck in that feeling of isolation and grief. But I think it's important to acknowledge that. Um, and part of what I love about Sebastian Younger's book really is the title, Tribe. Like it resonates with me. Um, I have a tribe. Everybody needs a tribe, right? Like Mary and Jennifer are part of my caregiving tribe, right? And that's a very special group to me. Like I said, not everybody is privy to what I go through as a caregiver for one reason as another or another, right? But having this tribe and in some ways really training for this because as you know, we're all in different states. Like my closest friends that are caregivers that I can talk to about like the nitty gritty of caregiving not one of them can I get in a car and drive to. They're just not here. They're not close enough. And so figuring out your tribe and what that looks like is so critical and being willing to be creative. Like it doesn't have to be 
it's fine to protect yourself and your feelings and say like, yeah, I have this group of friends and they're really great for this, but they're not great for that. So I'm not going to turn to them for that. Right. And like those healthy boundaries and it can reduce isolation because on one hand, if I'm talking to a group of friends that don't understand caregiving or want to, you know, normalize something that my husband does because he lacks impulse control because of his brain injury, then I'm all of a sudden like, Oh, no, not talking anymore. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna talk about that with you. In fact, I don't want to talk to you about anything, right? So knowing that you can establish these different tribes that support different needs, I think is important to realize right now, especially because, like Mary said, comparing everybody's being affected in different ways, right? So you may find you have like one friend or one group of friends that are better at relating to and understanding some component of feeling that you're having now. Whereas another one, you're like, oh, every time I talk to her, you know, I just, or him, I just leave feeling worse. Um, so I think the tribe is really important. And I guess I would love to hear what you guys do to establish and maintain your tribes. So let's take a, a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about that. Good question. Hi, I'm Kelsey Grammer. Wounded Warrior Project supports injured veterans by connecting them with fellow warriors, by serving them through mental health and wellness programs, and by empowering them to live on their own terms. No one should face a battle alone. Join us at WoundedWarriorProject.org. Well, let's talk about our tribes. Well, so what, one thing I did want to talk about, when we talk a lot about... Um, I just wanted to circle back to this. We talk a lot about connectedness. And um, I think what I, I feel like what I'm seeing is that we're, we're expressing more easily how we care about people. So it's not, it's not just connecting like, oh, let's hang out and play a game on you know, Zoom or hang out and talk about a book we read. It's more about how we care, we care about people, how we show we care. Like I really loved early on when the teachers, and my daughter is a third grade teacher and she too is single like you, Dan. So she's been, she was by herself for a while with her dog. She quarantined herself and then came here so she wouldn't be alone through the rest of the, but before she did that, they, all of the teachers in her school got in the car they got in each of their own car and made signs for their kids and put them in the windows and drove through the neighborhoods, telling the kids that how much they cared about them and how much they missed them. And I think the kids would never have known that in that way if, we, if this pandemic had not happened, especially, honestly, at the end of the school year. Because teachers have a hard time showing how much they care about anything at the end of the school year. We get pretty tired. So it was, it was, it's really been beautiful expressions of caring. Um, for my, my tribe in particular hasn't really changed a lot. And I will say, I think I'm an outlier. I've had a very isolating life the last few years. I can't go, I can't travel. I can't, Tom needs a lot of supervisory care. So unless there's somebody here to kind of supervise what he's doing in the home and making him meals, um, I'm not going anywhere. So it really, and for him, it's one of the kids. If one of our kids is here, um, then, then I can get out. So I, I think really I've kind, of exp I've kind of built my tribe 
over the last few years. And I agree 100% Raquel with you. There are some people you can share this with and some people who you can't because they say the same thing, like Tom's working memory is impaired. Oh, well, my husband forgets things too. Mm. Okay, so we can't share that then because now I'm frustrated with that conversation and that's the, and I just have to understand that they don't get it. So. And I think um, if, if our audience is educated on anything, it's that you should never compare um, disabilities. You should never compare reaction to conditions or medications or anything like that because we're all so individual. And, and really, we're all experiencing this in individual ways. Um, Dan is part of my tribe, and I have to say he did conduct some buddy checks on me, which was very appreciated. And... Um, Dan and I will have to have an episode part two because we have a really um, interesting and surprising connection in our background that we found out about like in the first hour that we met. So we'll share that on a, that's a little teaser for a future episode, but um, absolutely. Dan um, be, being all by yourself and we may have people listening Did that. I wanted to know, did that exacerbate any old feelings of grief or loss that maybe you had? Hadn't experienced um, in a while. Uh, yes, it did. I, you know, during the period of time uh, that we've kind of been isolated, you know, uh, some anniversaries, shall we say, uh, and I don't necessarily use that word. It's hard to use that word because anniversary is kind of supposed to be a happy word. But the some days came along that marked the days when uh, years ago on that day in this place was when I lost friends. Uh, and, you know, when you're alone uh, and, and you start to think about that, uh, it's very easy to say, well, I'm going to go, you know, the, the, uh, the, the gas stations are considered essential. So I'm going to go to the gas station, pick me up a 12, you know, a, a 12 or of whatever. And, sit here and, and, and remember about it. And that's not really the, the positive answer. So um, what I did was uh, I would reach out to fellow veterans, specific veterans. And, you know, I have a tribe within a tribe within a tribe. A lot of veterans have that. Um, I have a tribe. You of, have a couple, you, you shouldn't just have one one support network. I think that was a really good point that Raquel made is that um, right. you really need to try to evolve into a couple of uh, support areas. Peer support is great. Um, you can connect on Facebook pages like this caregiver life and actually right. caregivers. Um, you can seek support from an organization like you did with Wounded Warrior Project. And so in that way, you have multiple layers of support. So when one isn't really holding you up, the other ones can. Absolutely. And, and you know, that's what I relied on. Uh, and I would say, the last thing I would say is, you know, uh, we all have tribes, whether we realize it or not sometimes. And uh, it, it behooves us uh, uh, to find our tribes. Uh, and if you don't think you have a tribe, you know, uh, you can create your own tribe or you can reach out to other tribes and those tribes might very well accept you. And, and, and now you do have a tribe. No one should be alone. No one should be isolated. Uh, that's as rock, as Raquel said, that's not the way we are. We're social animals. We're social beings. And, 
You know, uh, last thing uh, to Mary, you know, when this whole thing started uh, in my neighborhood, all of a sudden, all the kids' birthdays, all the parents would drive by and honk for the birthday party. And then everybody in my neighborhood uh, started putting up hearts for the essential people, the doctors, the nurses, the teachers, the firefighters, the paramedics. So all these hearts started showing up in the windows. And my daughter came over and we made hearts and put them up in the windows, you know, to show the support uh, of all the people that are truly essential out there that are continuing to allow our society to move forward, even though uh, we have this COVID and, and the other things going on. So. Well, Dan, I, I think that's a perfect way to, to wrap up. You know, if you don't have a tribe, find one and maybe you find one by putting a heart in your window. Certainly, um, your soul is uh, not at risk, I should say, anymore of overflowing or bursting. And I'm super happy to be part of your tribe and that you joined us today to share um, your remarkable story of, of strength and overcoming grief that's just layered and layered and layered upon you. And you're a remarkable man and a remarkable friend. And we just appreciate you so much. You ladies are awesome. And it's been my pleasure and my honor uh, to meet you, Raquel and Mary, and to talk to you again, Jennifer. And if there's anything I can ever do, please uh, don't hesitate. Well, we want to thank Raquel, who is our um, our voice of reason on this four-part series with our, our joint collaborative effort with Family Operating Base. Um, we'll certainly put links to both the New York Times article that Raquel cited and Sebastian Junger's book in our show notes so that you can find those easily. Um, and also, uh, as we close up here, I, I want to remind our listeners this is a heavy subject. And we may have touched upon something that that's really that's really got you thinking and maybe it's really got you thinking that you need to talk to someone. And so we want you to know that the NAMI helpline is available Monday through Friday, 10 to six Eastern time. That number is 800-950-6264. You can also text NAMI to 741-741-247 where you can get confidential free text counseling and and connections to resources in in your community um, and if if you are feeling uh, like harming yourself if you're having thoughts of suicide we want you to know the suicide hotline is open 24 7 365 simply call 800-273-8255 or text help to 741-741 thanks so much for listening to this caregiver life we hope you'll connect with us on our social media we're on facebook and instagram we even tweet from time to time. And uh, if you'd like to email us a question, a show suggestion, or maybe you want to send us a voice memo that we can use in a future episode, just email us at thiscaregiverlife at gmail.com. And Mayor, we have an exciting announcement for our listeners here on episode 41. Do you want to share that? I do, because I don't know what it is, though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you follow us on social media, you know that um, as of our 40th episode, we actually exceeded 2,000 listeners. And right before the show, I checked, and we were at 2,152. Oh, wow. See, I was going to say that. I always go with, the, with that first answer choice in your head. <laughs> I agreed, even if we were wrong. But I want to thank uh, 
over 2,000 of the coolest people uh, on the planet who are uh, audience members of This Caregiver Life and uh, invite you back for our next show. Uh, and Mayor, do you want to tell us what, we, what we'll be discussing next? So our next show, so I'm actually going to jump in and do a, um, a podcast that I think kind of jumps off of this a little bit. Um, it's not part of our four-part series, but I'm going to be interviewing Michael Bullen. Michael uh, was a caregiver to his wife who had a very aggressive form of ALS with dementia. Um, from diagnosis to the day she died was just about a year. He's a male caregiver, uh, three children in college, very, very intense. And I spoke to him a little bit today. And so we'll be talking a little more about, about grief and he's going to share kind of how he moved forward a little bit after she died and how he handled things while she was still alive. So I think that piggybacks off this a little bit. Um, and then the next, um, our next podcast in this series is um, Healthy Mind, Healthy Body. And I'm really looking forward to that. And I, I think we build on that from, we take what we've discussed here and we build a little bit on that with the Healthy Mind, Healthy Body perspective, giving you know tips and suggestions on how to be as, as in the right place for yourself. So you do not lose your mind during this sort of quarantine period here. Well, thank you for that. And uh, thank you, Raquel, for joining us again. We look forward to seeing you next time. And with that, we'll close out. And until next time, everyone. Until next time. <laughs>